exhibitions and programs here at the George Eastman Museum. Uh, thank you all for coming out to our first of three Wish You Were Here artist talks for 2019. Uh, this long-standing series has brought many significant voices in contemporary photography to the museum since 2001. We've been fortunate to host the likes of Steve McCurry, Susan Mizellis, Rachel Sussman, Elliot Erwitt, Todd Heido, Andrea Modica, John Fall, Keely Yuan, and Sally Mann, just to name a few. All of this has been made possible through the very, very generous sponsorship and support by Dr. Thomas Tischer. Uh, Tom is here with us this evening. Uh, please join me in thanking Tom for his continued support. So we're excited to add this year's lineup of speakers to the aforementioned group. For those of you who have been to the series before, you'll know that typically these talks take place in the Dryden Theater. Uh, but since we are currently in the middle of a major restoration project of the museum's colonnade, which is the area, the walkway behind the Dryden Theater, uh, we have to have the Dryden closed uh, until... Uh, about middle of October, we're hoping. So um, for the time being, we're going to be doing some of our talks in here. Um, and we'll just squeeze in and get comfy. I'm happy to see so many of you here. So on Saturday, October 19th at 2 p.m., the artist duo of Jonathan Anderson and Edwin Lowe will present on the work that will be featured in their upcoming exhibition, Voyages and Discoveries, which will be in the museum's main galleries, uh, opening on October 18th. Um, uh, let's see here, where am I? Uh, okay, on November 7th, uh, artist Lena Herzog uh, will discuss her practice as a photographer whose projects have taken her across the globe, capturing awe-inspiring landscapes. And this is going to be another unique instance. So that, that talk is actually going to be in the Dryden, uh, hopefully, uh, on November 7th. And after Lena's talk, uh, we're also going to be featuring uh, a recent moving image work by her titled Last Whispers. And that's going to be our Dryden daytime screening uh, throughout uh, the end of October through the end of the year. And Lena is going to actually present that evening and introduce a special DCP screening of Last Whispers as our Dryden film that evening, which will be the members' film as well. So um, please uh, keep that on your calendars and join us for that. Tonight, though, and the reason we're all here, we're excited to have Larry McNeil with us to share the stories and ideas behind his work. McNeil's work has been included in more than 55 exhibitions throughout the Americas and Europe including the Eideljorg Museum, the Center for Creative Photography, the Eamon Carter Museum, Peabody Essex Museum, the Barbican Art Gallery, Princeton University Library, and the National Museum of the American Indian. His photographs are represented in the collections of NMAI, the Eamon Carter Museum, the Autry Museum of the American West, 
the National Museum of Scotland, the Idle Jord Museum, and the National Gallery of Canada. McNeil has also received various fellowships and awards, such as Infocos New Works Award, the Ford Foundation's Evergreen Longhouse National Creative Development Grant, and the National Geographic Society's All Roads Indigenous, Indigenous Photography Award. Finally, he taught at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and is currently a professor of photography at Boise State University in Idaho. Please join me in welcoming Larry McNeil. So I'd like to thank everybody who invited me out here to make this possible. Um, and, and you, the audience, thank you for coming to see the work. I, I appreciate it. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll go ahead and start in. Uh, so these are some of the portfolios that I've done through the decades. I've been a photographer since around 1977 or so and received a formal education in photography. Um, I use photography to try and help make better sense of our world. And if I was just to sift it all down to one sentence, that would be it. Still trying to make sense of it, by the way. <laughs> yeah. If anybody else can make sense of it, you can email me and give me some feedback. <laughs> Back home in Alaska, the ancient art looks like us. This is a poll by my cousin, Nathan Jackson. And I was talking to Nathan when he finished carving this bowl. I said, did you use my mustache? <laughs> I, I think he did. This is a poll by another cousin, Richard Beasley, from the Coho clan. And that looks just like one of my aunties. I mean, just like her. I'm amazed. In back home, you're, I'm supposed to give a formal introduction to myself, and usually, Man, these introductions can go on a long time. <laughs> so this is uh, my grandparents, where they're from, and parents, where they're from, and so forth. And I'm still amazed that my um, grandfather was born in 1873. That's quite a while ago, my, mother, my mother's father. <coughs> I have various bodies of work that I'm going to share with you this evening. And one of them is called Fly-By-Night Mythology. And I chose the fly-by-night mythology title because it references our Northwest Coast creation story that has Yech, or Raven, as a protagonist. As part of our own creation story, Raven brought light to the world. This is a great metaphor for the entire series. He's also a rebellious rascal, so I really love that part because it allows, allows, you, allows artists to kind of set themselves a little more free than usual. Much of the work started as journal entries. Fly-by-night fly by mythology series started as actually on this old typewriter that I got from my grandmother. And it still works. I, I keep it on my desk in my office at school, in our, in our brand new office. And it just reminds me of home. This one's titled Cosmological Status, and it's using Raven as a storyteller. And this one was made as a billboard uh, for public art in Santa Fe. And I, so I was having kind of fun with it because um, I, I found a Smithsonian book from 1902 that had these two skeletons in it. 
And there was a scientist who was putting forth the theory that humans evolved from birds. So I said, yeah, that's great. You know, <laughs> it goes along with their own crea creation story about Raven as part of the creator. Oh, and there's uh, Billy Raven is, I, I mean, Billy Graham is cruising around in a Cadillac <laughs> with, with Raven. So there's spirituality in here, too. <laughs> Concolmouth is about my father's Nishka homeland. This is from uh, 1998. And oh, yeah, by the way, just became an official Nishka citizen in April. So. <laughs> And um, so I, I got this story from my, one of my aunties who's passed on now. And I was asking her about the name of the, my dad's village. And she said, uh, it translates to place on the beach where enemy skulls are planted. Because there in Concolith, it was prime land. It's been, that village has been in the same place for more than 10,000 years, constantly occupied. So the neighboring tribes, tribes would always be invading and trying to, you know, take slaves. And so, so there are wars going on for hundreds <laughs> of years. And finally, the, the clan mothers, who were the leaders, decided, okay, we're going to put a stop to this nonsense. So it, their strategy was to invade the neighboring tribes and capture their chiefs. And so they brought them to our, our village site and um, cut their heads off and planted them on the beach, and all of a sudden there is peace. <laughs> you know, so anyway, um, that's just a part of, you know, the reality. Um, helped us live in peace, and add bo added bonus was that we didn't have very many Jehovah's Witness types ringing our doorbells. <laughs> it was a dark time in our history. Anyone got any spare skulls hanging around? <laughs> on the bottom it says, um, Concolith killer whales love 59 Cadillacs for some reason. <laughs> so, Oops. so there's a closer up image planet. So the skull is planted on a carved pole. This one is titled um, "Fly," but it's titled "Fly Don't Walk." It's from 1998, and um, there's there's text embedded it in it. So a lot of these came directly from journal entries. And what I do is I just write down, you know, ideas and thoughts. And, and this one says, um, while watching a bird, a bird in shadow dance on a, on a very white wall, I was going to cross the street but came to a don't walk sign. Finally, the red hand turned into the figure of a white man walking. Not wanting to offend anyone, I did my best imitation of a white man walking across the street. <laughs> so, so I was showing this to my son when he was a little toddler, and he said, "Show me that walk." <laughs> so I had to do it. <laughs> and uh, this is when I lived in San Francisco and uh, was making the transition to being an artist from from a commercial photographer, actually. And I love. Triax film. The Raven Ass Pontiac series was made because my son came home from school singing a George Washington song and wanted to give him an indigenous view of who George Washington was. So, so that was, so for me as a native person, that was a little 
strange, you know, for him to be coming home and seeing that song. And so, I, so I sat him down and said, "Well, you know, there's there's a broader story of who George Washington was too." And, and I'd always bring him home with me to Alaska too, and show him, you know, Poles artwork and stuff, and meet all his relatives up there. Raymond S. Pontiac, and this is one of four prints from 1998. Washington, George Washington fought for the British as a young man against the Ottawa, the Ottawa tribe in the Great Lakes area. Uh, Pontiac drove them out and became a hood ornament. <laughs> so, so, so that was a quirky thing, you know, because of course we know George Washington, you know, became the father of our country and Pontiac became a hood ornament. And, um, this is titled Yech, or Raven, it's second of four images. And uh, I used palladium uh, to make this print and multimedia work. And a lot of studio work went into it. Um, yeah, that's our, that's, you say, in Tlingit you say yeah for, for Raven. Raven plays the role of a trickster. He can be audacious and get away with it, yet tell stories that need to be told. And in the background, there's some stories that are written in both English and Tlingit. I use the negative space for making layered images, so kind of collaged look. Some layers are visual metaphors as part of the narrative. This one's titled Pontiac Flag, and it's third of the four prints. One dollar bills. I guess it's illegal to scan them now. <laughs> when, back then, you could just scan them in on a computer, and I guess a lot of people were making printed out by. <laughs> you know, I guess it looked real if you had the right kind of paper, but you can't do it these days. So, so this is the dialogue that got the series going. Um, Raven asked Pontiac dialogue. So it's it's Raven kind of kind of having a riff, you know, with. Uh, with Pontiac, they're just kind of like sitting around talking and Raven says, don't you feel cheap being a hood ornament? Pontiac says, I'm not really a hood ornament. This is a white man thing, you know, like duct tape, spam, and weed free lawns. <laughs> Raven says, so how can you talk to me when you're, when you're not a hood ornament? And Pontiac says, because you asked me, I put my voice here. Raven says, is there any honor in it? Pontiac says, I have honor wherever I go. Raven, but what about being a stereotype? Pontiac says, perceptions are stereotypes, not me. Why are you asking so many questions? Raven says, I like shiny stuff. <laughs> and boy, are you shiny. <laughs> Pontiac says, that's just me coming through the crop. <laughs> yeah. so, so I wrote this. This was just a journal entry. And that, this is actually where the series came from. Right there. And, uh, this is a Pontiac airplane. It's uh, the fourth of the four prints. I love studio photography, so this was done in the studio and has some subtle details here and there. This is a Tana and a warplane. My son is named Tana, so Tana means copper. 
in, back in ancient times, copper was the most valuable thing that we had. You know, we had just starting to use metal during pre-contact times. And uh, the Raymond S. Pontiac is, series is now on permanent display at the National Museum of Scotland. And I think that this, uh, the Scots really loved the piece because it was making fun of the British. <laughs> and, and it took me a while to catch on. I was, I was curious, hey, Mike, why do they like it? So they liked it so much that he put it in their permanent area. <laughs> this one's titled Yich, which is Raven also, and it's a monotype triptych. It's about seven and a half feet wide. It's made in 2001. So, so I, I like experimenting with different media too. Um, so this was, I think, about the third or fourth uh, monotype that I made. This is our family fishing boat. It's called the Yukon. It's based out of Kodiak. And I grew up on boats. So some of my earliest memories in Alaska are living, living on a boat for the summer. You know, so. It's my first commercial fishing license at 16. You grow up fast in Alaska. I, I notice that in a lot of rural areas too. Like in Idaho, I, I teach in Idaho, and sometimes I get students who live in the ranches nearby, and I notice that they grow up pretty fast too. You know, they're, they're working on the, the ranches, full, full-fledged uh, workers. This was me earning money for photography school as a deckhand in Alaska with my dad. This was in the 70s. That's me right there, <coughs> fishing halibut. This one's titled Dad. It's from 2003. So, so I had a challenge about um, making a print about my own father. And I always thought that was an interesting challenge for artists or everyday people to do. I mean, how would you tell a story about your father? Or, or how would you tell a story about your, your mother? You know, what, what would you say about them? I, I find that to be very interesting. And I, I love hearing stories from people about, you know, them talking about who their parents were and how their parents formed their identity and so forth. And uh, so I, I waited until I was older to make this, you know. I, and um, so this is his narrative. I, I, I approached this the exact same way as I did um, my other work. So, so I wrote the journal entry about him. And uh, to be born as a Niska in the early 1920s mostly meant being taken from your family and placed in Indian boarding schools. Calling them schools is a bad joke. They were mostly corrupt Christian labor camps. If you survived, you received a third grade education. In spite of this, her dad was driven to be a captain of many fishing boats over the decades. His generation of native pe peoples had to overcome incredible odds just to survive, let alone prosper. They held on to her traditional identity when it was almost wiped out. So I'm not very judgmental about the faults that were placed upon them when I consider everything that they had to endure he was one, one of my first mentors as a young man, so I always say, thanks, Dad. And, um, yeah, so, so it was very challenging. So I, I was visiting him one summer with, with my son, and I asked him to go down in the boat harbor with me so I could make portraits down there. 
This is a typical kind of scene in southeast Alaska. Lots of foggy days, and it's, it's a northern rainforest. And this was when uh, my dad, it's Niska Simojit, means Niska chief, or most relied upon man, or woman too. So I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, that they didn't have a word for chief. Instead, their name was most relied upon woman, or most relied upon man. So this, he, he was going through this ceremony there. So I'm, I'm from Juneau, Alaska, and my dad is Canadian. And I never knew why he came to, migrated to, to Alaska. So um, I found out accidentally from one of his friends. And what happened, so I'll read this to you. Our dad left his Niska homeland as a young man to escape a traditional arranged marriage. This guy is the one who married her, and in order to restore his honor, he gave my dad extremely um, extravagant gifts, um, in spite of really wanting to punch his <laughs> lights out. And, and anyway, um, this was a this is called a shaming ceremony. So, so this guy got his honor back by giving my dad's gifts. So. And so it was essentially saying that he was better than my dad because my dad, you know, escaped uh, an arranged marriage when he was a young man. So, so anyway, that, that's part of who we are, part of our family story. And to this day, my dad never told that story. I had to pry it out of his sister. <laughs> and, uh, Mary Brown Betts and Anita Brown at 906 West 7th. And these are two of the matriarchs of our of our tribe, our clan. They're the ones who, you know, everybody relies on when things are tough. And this was shot on Kodak 828 film. This one's titled Grandma, We Who Are Your Children? And it's a monotype and family photograph of our grandmother as a young woman. And, and the, 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 that's a killer whale fin. Call it Kik Gushi Hit, and that translates to Kilowell Finn House. And you can always tell it's a northern Tlingit Chilkat style because it usually has a, a hole in the top of the fin. So, so that was a monotype. But I liked experimenting with the colors too, you know, using um, some of our colors, like the um, that color on the left is called Chilkat Blue. Titled We Were Your Children. And, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, it's from 2003, a monotype and Kodachrome film. And um, this is my, when my mother was a, she was in high school there and she was making some moccasins. So, so our, 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 mother, our grandmother helped um, provide uh, food for the family, you know, by selling things like moccasins and uh, purses to the tourist trade. And, and she taught my mom how to do the same thing. And, uh, breaking the race barrier with public schools in Juneau. Mom's parents refused to send her to a boarding school. So, so this, this is a story about breaking the race barrier. Because prior to our mother going to school, they didn't allow 
Tlingit native people to go to the public schools. And um, so, so our grandmother insisted that my mom attend a public school. Service stars for two uncles serving in, in World War II at the time in his Kodak Bantam camera. So I'm sure you guys remember seeing this from, from World War II. Remember that? The, I mean, this was long before I was born. But if, if you had family members serving overseas, you'd have these service stars in the, in the window. So I had an uncle who was serving in um, Germany, and the other one was in Adak, Alaska. National Geographic used the image when I earned an All Roads Photography Award. So that was pretty cool, you know, getting your stuff on the National Geographic site. Boosted my career, that was great. <laughs> I was asked back to serve on the Nat Geo All Roads board. I told him if I, I'd serve if he had good coffee. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so I had my own seat outside, you know, get you know, get stuffy in there sometimes. So I'd just step outside and get a coffee. <laughs> this is an Uncle Judson Brown, Shiguni, so it's the late chief of the key. Gushi Hit in Klukwan. He was an avid photographer too. He gave me cameras when I was a young man, when I was going to Brooks Institute, um, and, and gave me an enlarger to use and so forth. And uh, so that was nice. <coughs> this is a Brooks Institute studio assignment about light and learning about how to use a 4x5 film camera. It's from 1975. You know, when I think back to it, I think, wow, man, I was just a kid back then. <laughs> I'm working on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. That paid for my Brooks education. This is from 1976. So those are called VSMs, Vertical Supports. And uh, so my job was bolting down. That's me right there. My job was bolting down the pipeline. <laughs> so I was a bolting down guy. I was really good at it. <laughs> I had a 20-year-old Leica to learn 35-millimeter photography. I really loved that camera because it forced you to slow down. You know, even loading the film was arduous sometimes. And I, I like it because it forced me to make more careful compositions, you know, than with a regular 35-millimeter camera. This one's titled Real Indians from 1977. It's a silver gelatin print. And uh, this is this this is a one photograph that kind of set me free. You know, I, I talked to a lot of different artists about you know them making a living as an artist, and almost everybody has a story of you know an image that helped set them free as a creative person, you know, and kind of set the tone for future work. And uh, so that's what this one did for me. It, it allowed me to be you know maybe just a little bit audacious, you know, and I, I was. Get it breaking away from Brooks for, during the winter time, and I was just driving Route 66, you know, and, and I came across this scene and I drove right by it, and, and I thought to myself, that is so bad that it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back and um, leaned against the old car that was sitting out front, you know. Anyways, I still love this photograph. Tendency to write for some reason. Still. 
This one's titled In the True Spirit of White Man. It's multimedia. And the, all these splotches over here, that's um, butcher paper from my darkroom um, when I was making palladium prints. And, and, and after about six months, it looked like that. And I, I said, wow, man, I really like that mess right there. <laughs> so I just uh, scanned it in and used it for uh, this one. So this one is textual. It's Manifest Destiny Dialogue. So um, in the true spirit of white man, I stole this car in my search for America. Just call it Manifested Destiny. I asked the owner to take my picture in front of his car before I took it and assured him that it was God's will that I take his car. <laughs> <laughs> God meant for this fine machine to be flying down the freeway, I told him. Are you a real Indian, he asked. I thought you were all vanished. As soon as you give me the keys, I'll be another vanishing Indian. <laughs> I told him, oh, can you look more noble? I told him, sorry, this is a stoic I can manage for now. <laughs> he asked if I had any regalia to put on, you know, to make it look authentic. This is as real as it gets, I told him. I saw in a book that you people were all vanished, he said again. I asked him if he still had his native culture and who is the vanished one, you or me. He told me that his grandfather was Edward Curtis and that he made some of the best photographs of Indians before they vanished. Like me, kind of. Thanks for the car, I told him, but I got some serious vanishing to catch up on. <laughs> So there it is. I love cars. You know, even with all this global climate stuff, you know, <laughs> give me a car any day. <laughs> this guy's name is Herbert Johnson. He was one of the uh, leaders from the Bear Clan. And this is a, a palladium version. The original was made in 1983, but this is a, a 19, 2018 version that I made in a, using a different process. really like this one because uh, it merges him with the forest. And, and the forest is such a beautiful place to be up there. You know, so, so you really have to experience it to really appreciate you know, the, the feel of it. It's just amazing. This one is called Tlaq, the land. And it's also palladium with Triax, originally Triax is my favorite film, I love that. And uh, I wanted to make Raven larger than life, part of the landscape in with Raven Chrome film. <laughs> yeah. I was approached to by a group of people and they asked me if I wanted to participate in this uh, art and embassies program. Oh man, I didn't have to think about that one. Heck yeah! <laughs> so, um, so the American Embassy has, or the State Department has a repository of prints. So, so whenever they have a, an ambassador going to some place overseas, that ambassador can go to the repository and and essentially check out art, you know, for for their whichever embassy they're serving in. You know, so with that in mind, I made this piece. You know, knowing that. This is going to be a representative of the American people, 
And um, so that was great. It's titled First Light, Winter Solstice. So everybody knows Edward Curtis, right? Yeah. You know, he, he photographed Native Americans. And, and of course, one of the, one of the and I really have mixed feelings about him because, you know, you look at his work and there is a beauty to it. You know, there is, you, you can't argue that point. His, he makes beautiful portraits. But his, his Vanishing Race title was kind of odd to me, you know, because it makes the inference that Native Americans are vanished. So, so a lot of times, even today, when I meet people, I tell them I'm Lincoln, I'm Native American. And, and of course, they say, I thought you were all vanished. <laughs> so, you know, what a quirky thing to be this hearing. So, so this is, um, the vanishing race isn't vanished anymore. This was an extremely difficult lithograph to make because the original Curtis print was very subtle. And it took me two days to make this plate correctly because it had this kind of golden hue to it. and. Um, and I wanted to, um, so, so instead of having the native people riding off to the sunset, I have been going to a morning ceremony at solstice, like they probably do every solstice. And as they're riding to the ceremonies, they see this old truck off to the side. <laughs> Love old trucks. In the spirit of Raven, I used invisible ink as a last plate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I was collaborating with a master lithography, excuse me, a lithographer named Brooke Steiger. She's just an amazing lithographer. And I was asking her, I said, hey, Brooke, you know, you, you did such a beautiful job with this. Is there such a thing as invisible ink? <laughs> and she kind of laughed and she said, well, there's uh, clear ink. So I said, yeah, that's what I want. Can you some clearing? And put a little sheen on it, you know? And um, so if you look at that print in person, if you stand about a 45 degree angle to it, the words appear. You know, so, so it's kind of, I really loved how that turned out. You know, it worked just, because we had no idea whether it would work or not. Uh, migrations, this is a new, I was asked to participate in another one. Well, it was juried into this one, actually. And um, part of it, it included making two lithographs, so I, wanted to, so I wanted to continue with the Curtis work. So you see a pattern here with Edward Curtis, my friend Edward Curtis. And uh, so, so this one's, um, it's titled, uh, Edward Curtis's Last Photograph. <laughs> and. Uh, it, it has a cartoon part of it, and it says, um, I swear by God, Bob, if that Curtis bonehead, I can't read it from here. Can somebody? <laughs> yeah, so, so anyway, yeah, so the text is important you know, the storyline. And um, Edward Curtis dressed a pair of Plinkett warriors in some costumes from the trunk of his car. It was the last photo he ever made. <laughs> I always wondered what Eddie's last photo was. This one's titled Native Epistemology. 
in its uh, lithograph. And part of the color scheme has to do with, I wanted it to have our Chilcat blue color in, in the background. And if you look up here, there's, there's you can barely see it, but that's um, lens schematic from my favorite lens. So I wanted to have that as a part of it too. So he says, uh, Kimasabi, me no like, say cheese for that white man Curtis. <laughs> He want me to dress in paradigmatic duds that only extinguishes native epistemology. <laughs> so in, in here, I have Tonto kind of morphing into an intellectual. <laughs> and instead of being um, the sidekick, now the Lone Ranger is Tonto's sidekick. <laughs> Lone Ranger was taken aback by Tonto's resolve and wondered what epistemology meant. <laughs> so, so I had fun with this one. So I was collaborating with the master lithographer, Frank Jansen, and uh, collaborations are always interesting, you know, because you're working with another person, I, I had no idea how this thing would work, you know, and, and he was such an amazing guy, so here he is, is rolling the inks on, and he asked me, um, well, what about uh, the the main plate number two? And I said, you know what, I like magenta. You know, let's mix up some inks. So he, so he probably showed me 20 different versions of magenta, and I didn't like any of them. And so he said, why don't we just try straight magenta? So he just squirted out of the tube and rolled it, and it was perfect. <laughs> so we didn't have to do any fancy mixing or anything. It was just good right out of the tube. <laughs> this one's called Diacritical Formline, Chilcat style. It's a lithograph. So this is uh, from Canyon to Shea area. And, and I have the, you know how Curtis likes to have, you know, natives in, you know, riding horses and stuff. But, but at the time he made the photograph, a lot of the people had cars, you know, so they're driving. So I put a native family in there. <laughs> so they're cruising across the floor of Canyon de Shea, going out for a picnic. <laughs> this one's titled Sacred Power Pole from the Sacred Series. <laughs> and yeah, so, there, so the, I, I visualize this as a page from a book, you know, so this is how it looks on the wall. Over the years, I've I can't see it from here, I'm sorry. I've been cordially invited to participate in a number of exhibitions, many with titles such as Spirit Captured, Praising the Spirit, the Spirit of Native America, and so on. I must be a spiritual expert, so I set out on a quest to gather spiritual power. On my sacred journey, I found the sacred power pole. <laughs> 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 so I did my job. <laughs> the sacred power pole. <laughs> and this one's titled Sacred Frontage Road. It's from the same series. <laughs> There's sacredness everywhere. Can, can you do me a favor and read that again? Okay. I found some sacred chrome flashing by on the sacred frontage road. The spirits are with me. 
was made in Santa Fe, where my son was born. I met a white shaman there who told me that spirituality should not be for sale, even though he charges $500. In that life, my spirituality is not for sale either, but, but I gladly take a credit card for cash. So, so the offer still stands. <laughs> it's not for sale. Just, you know, it can be rented out. <laughs> and my, my challenge with this was kind of interesting, too. I, I, I wanted to make the chrome flashing by. And so, so there it is. That's a car right there, you know, with the chrome. So the only way I could do that was with a pinhole camera. You guys know what a pinhole camera is, right? And, stops down to like F3000 or something and it allows you to make a um, three minute exposure in the bright sunlight you know so, so that's what this was on with, with an 8x10 camera can you do me a thing? yeah please uh, on my sacred journey looking for a sacred sign I got lost on Semiotic Boulevard. There is a definite desire to make meaning of it all, but the only thing that was clear was that people get great joy from blasting the hell out of the sign. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you inclined to invest meaning in the world, I am awash in it and will gladly exchange it for semiotic or meaningful dollars. I take credit cards, but prefer cash. <laughs> true American, I can say with all honesty and honor that my spirituality is not for sale, but can be rented at reasonable price. In these days, I trade coffee. <laughs> and so this was at a, at a side road in, in Santa Fe. And it's true, you know, you go driving around the back roads there, you'll see all these signs that are just blasted to bejeebers, you know. This, this gentleman's name is Walter Sokoloff, and this was commissioned. This was a commission work by Sea Alaska back in 2009, and um, I really loved making his photograph. And he was almost a hundred, and he was still busy. You know, he was going to meetings and so forth. And when he, when he came into the studio, I set up a makeshift studio. He was sitting there, and he looked a little bit tired to me, so I was starting to tell him jokes. And I said, um, hey, do your, um, do your colleagues have to take naps in the afternoon to keep up with you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he laughed, so that's when I shot the photo. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> this is titled Tonto's TV Script Revision. It's in Palladium. Tonto brings Richard Pratt to justice. <laughs> so Richard Pratt is a bad guy. He's, he's the one who um, he started um, Carlisle boarding school, residential schools. And here I have Tonto with his sidekick, the Lone Ranger there. <laughs> There's his, his sidekick right there. And they have Edward Curtis under arrest, too. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing, but it's probably a little bit bad. It's about Native children being taken from their families. and um, So I wanted to make this print because my dad was in a residential school. 
so so for me it was you know getting past that you know and it just turned to be humorous too and you know that wasn't my intent it just I guess it just part of the creative process you kind of let things happen by themselves sometimes <laughs> this one's titled mass mass and more mass <laughs> it's a play in print and um, I, this was a collaboration with uh, printer by the name of David Michael Kennedy is a master play imprinter and he did a fantastic job so I always make sure I credit where I'm collaborating with my sidekick lending a hand <laughs> there's a I borrowed one of Curtis's photos where he used an assistant to make one of his well-known photographs so that was one of the things that Curtis did too he dress up his assistants in different kinds of regalia. And he had a truck. He was driving you know, driving his truck around America making his photographs. This one's titled 1491, the Feather Series. That's one of five from 1992. And I was asked to be in an exhibition um, commemorating um, Columbus arriving in the Americas. And, and of course, I said no. <laughs> no thanks. But then I thought about it and I thought, you know what, this is an opportunity to, to give my interpretation of what it means as a Native person, you know, to be living in, in America that's been so radically changed. And I titled it 1491 because it was, of course, the year before Columbus arrived. And to me, it means hope, you know, and all the positivity and all the good things that were happening, you know, before Columbus arrived. Uh, 1492 from the Feather series and uh, pretty simple I, I really love the simplicity of the Feather series you know just um, just I wanted to use basic elements and of course it's about death you know and um, smoke and but the feather you know I love the feather because it's about persevering through all that and this one was made for the National Museum of the American Indian in 2014 and Heather Shannon had a lot to do with helping this exhibition happen so I'd like to thank Heather for that she works here at the museum so thank you Heather um, so it's titled Elders and again it's from the Feather series uh, three of five it's platinum from the same exhibition and again you know there's some just love the simplicity with some photographs it's about light and the feather and, and darkness too. I, I teach lighting classes to my students and I teach them about um, highlights. I said, you know what, when you learn photography, it's about shadows too. You know, you have to learn how to, how to do shadows and, and, and do them creatively. I said, you know what, so I show them this photograph and I said, this is about something emerging out of darkness. You know, and, and just in a simple way, you know, it doesn't have to be complex. One of the most recent um, bodies of work I'm doing right now is called the Global Climate Change Series. This one's titled Bonehead Humans. <laughs> That's us, <laughs> by the way, from 2007. It's a lithograph cl collaboration. And you know the blue marble, it's the most 
recognizable photograph that NASA has um, of, of the Earth, taking a planet Earth. And um, so, so I did some research about this. I wanted, to, I wanted to find the photograph that was most recognizable of planet Earth. And, and since it was made by NASA, it's in the public domain, so anybody can use this image however they want, because we paid for it. And the challenge here was to make a lithograph with four plates and make it appear as a photograph. So I used cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And much to our surprise, it worked. <laughs> you know? So my hat's off to Frank Jensen. He was just a phenomenal printer. Raven steals the sun. Raven was white before he stole the sun. Time to steal the earth from those bonehead humans. <laughs> yeah, that's... This one's titled White, White Raven Ceremonial, and it's a Palladium. This is a 2018 version that I made of it. So one of the things I did was I was curious about um, coal-powered, um, coal-fired power plants. So I traveled around the country photographing these monumental power plants. The thing that startled me was how huge they are. You know, they're just amazingly large. And, and um, when I was photographing this, this series, I got a nasal infection. You know, it was from the emissions from the smokestacks, and it took about a month, to, you know, to get rid of it. And I, I felt bad for the people who had to live there. You know, there's a lot of neighborhoods just right nearby. And um, <coughs> I feel, you know, culpable in this too, because of course, you know, I live in a house, has electricity, has a freezer and all that stuff. And we're lucky in Idaho though, because we get 30% of our power from um, dams, you know, but, but that's not good enough. You know, we have to do better than that. And Raven was stood on his beak and, a, and there's a spruce root basket design in the background. Smokestack. This one's titled Demented Coal Paradox. It's from the Indelible Exhibition at the Smithsonian. Same one with that the um, Feather Series was in. And um, I wanted to do a collaboration with a master spruce root weaver, you know, to make a, a spruce root gas mask. You know, so, so I got some feedback from her about how to go about doing this because I wanted to make, make it look and feel you know, like it's a spruce root gas mask. And that was in platinum. This is how it looked on the web page. Tonto's Earthen House. And um, this one was public art, about eight feet wide from 2014. So this is almost life size, you know, when you see it. I was having fun with this one too. I, I love Cadillacs for some, you know, these 1959 Cadillacs with their big fins, and so that, that's kind of a paradox for me, I guess. So I did some work on this Cadillac. I, I wanted to transform it into a Plinket car, you know, with a with the Chilcat designs on it and so forth, and. Here's a spruce root gas mask for us indigenous cruisers. <laughs> you know, so I can stay healthy when I'm driving the Cadillac around. <laughs> this 
It's my former commuter bicycle, AC bicycle commute. Um, before I, I got hit by a car while I was bicycle commuting, and so I couldn't bicycle commute anymore. So it's interesting that I made this, I think it was two weeks before I got hit by a car. And, um, so there it is. Just in case you need an Indian guide, the Alaska Native Reader, edited by Maria Williams. So, so I, I wrote a chapter. She asked me if I'd write a chapter for her book. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll write it, thinking I could do it in a week. <laughs> and uh, it actually took me the whole summer to write this thing, because I was doing re-edits and redrafts and so forth. So I had to come up with a title, so I titled it, An Indigenous Guide to White Men, or How to Stay Sane When the World Makes No Sense. <laughs> this is from another text um, titled Visual Currencies. This is, it was published in Scotland by the same people who um, bought the Ravenous Pontiac series. And this is from the uh, most current project that I'm working on. I was shooting with film and uh, using a, what's called a panoramic camera and um, at this dilapidated site and, and scanning them into, uh, into the computer here. So, so I, that's the other thing, I really like mixing you know, analog film processes with uh, digital media. And, and sometimes still going in the darkroom too, you know. I still print in the darkroom a lot too. This is from National Geographic Proof. It's myself and Will Wilson from when we had the exhibition in Washington, D.C. in 2014. And this is um, asked me if I share some work with them because they they gave me an award once and, and a web page. So, so this was kind of fun. You know, I said, yeah, OK, I'll put these images up. So that was nice. And lately, I, I tried experimenting with glass. This is a Raven collaboration with uh, Dan Friday, the Evergreen Longhouse. And um, so I was using a lot of my designs that I used before. and. It, they're coming out really nice, and uh, so I only made one glass vessel, and it turned out great. So that might be something to experiment with more in the future. And thank you for being here. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think we may have time for questions. Yeah, we've got a few questions. Yeah. Oh, oh, good, okay. Yeah, sure. You talked a little bit about, it seems like you have a theme of automobiles, cars, trucks. And the second thing is, as a white man, I'd like to see you walk like a white man. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get me a coffee first. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll do that for you, but bring on the coffee. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so the car, the car theme. The car theme? Um, I'm sorry. Can you? Is there one? There is, yes, definitely a car theme because I, I think that's another one of the paradoxes, you know, not just for me, but probably everybody in this room. I mean, we love our cars, right? I mean, um, so in order for me to live with myself by, while doing this work, I got a, a volt 
you know, it's one of the plug-in hybrids. And so, so I went nearly a full year without buying gasoline, you know, and, and that's pretty good. And But then you think back, wait a minute, you had to plug it in, right? <laughs> and, and like 70% of that is coal power, you know, so... So we're not there yet, but I, I'm optimistic though. I, I think that we can be, you know, and I have a sister, you know, I was telling her about it and she lives in Juneau and she said, I'm gonna get a leaf, you know, so, so she's gonna jump on board and, and, and my oldest brother, you know, he likes fancy cars and, you know, he said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, he has a Lexus from 15 years ago, it's still running really well and he said, you know, I wanted to buy an electric car, but my Lexus just refuses to die. <laughs> so anyway, it's, yeah, that's what, the, yeah. You seem to have the same sense of humor as Sherman Alexi. Do you get him compared to him ever? Yeah, I, I met Sherman a couple times. Yeah, he, he is a funny guy. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good observation, you know, and, and you think about um, humor and why do humans laugh? Anyway, I always ask myself that, why do humans laugh? And I, I, think, I, I, I think it's because it has to do with healing, you know, because I noticed when I was just a little kid that I'd attend, you know, our meetings with uh, tribal elders and they would be telling the funniest jokes they would just have you laughing so hard. And, and then after they, you know, have those, you know, laughing sessions, and then they'd get down to business and talk about all the tough issues. And then they'd finish up the meeting with more jokes, you know. And, uh, so everybody left smiling, you know, even though it was tough, tough issues. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Well, are there any photographers or artists that you would cite as like inspirations or influenced your work in any positive way? Yes, um, I grew up with a lot of uh, relatives as artists, and uh, so it's nice to when you're just a little kid, you know, to to go to a cousin's studio, and usually it was just like looked like a big garage, you know. And, you know, it was cold in there in the winter time, but they're in there carving or painting or whatever. And um, so, from a very young age, you know, I realized that there are people that make have their livelihoods as being artists. And and then, you know, later on, going to photography school, you know, of course, when you're put in a formal setting like that, you're influenced by a lot of people. And, including some of the names that um, were named when I first came to the podium. You know, there's, there's a, one of my um, people that I, I always admired was uh, other native photographers first because I saw their work earlier. You know, like Lee Marmon, I don't know if you're aware of him or not, but he's in his 90s now and still alive. And um, Horace Pula, he's uh, 
Kiowan photographer. He made photographs during World War II, early 20th century. And of course, there are the usual suspects, you know, like uh, Eugene Smith, you know, and, and just so many other photographers. And um, so, so when I was learning photography, one of the things I learned, of course, was light. And in my opinion, uh, Eugene Smith was the best at photojournalism, you know, and, and capturing these very realistic scenes, you know, using just a camera and a, one of the small pocket flash things and so forth. And so, yeah, influenced by a lot of people. Yes? What drew you to photography school? Yeah, um, for me it was happenstance. You know, I was working, I was earning money, working on my dad's fishing boat when I was 17, and going back to high school as a senior then, and I was walking downtown buying my supplies, and there's a old pawn shop right next to a office supply place. So I was looking at cameras in the windows, and, and, and just found one that I could afford, and enrolled in a photo school when I was a senior, in, I mean, in a photo class when I was a senior in high school, and we had a really great instructor then, and, you know, so I was inspired by, by that, and seeing photographs too, you know, growing up and seeing photographs, because they're nearly everywhere, and of course, as we know, and uh, I didn't know whether I'd be able to make a living doing it, so it was, for me, it was just going step by step and just hoping, you know, I can make it work, and I'm still doing that. <laughs> Making it work, going, yeah, I hope this, hope this works, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, thanks. Yeah? How did you find it make the transition from commercial photography to fine art? Good question, did you hear his question? Yeah. Yeah, about making the transition. You know, I never intended to be a commercial photographer. I went to a school called Brooks Institute, in a school of professional photography. And um, so I, I learned commercial photography too well. <laughs> you know? so, so immediately after I graduated, I just started getting work because of my, the portfolio that I had. And that was great. You know, I, I really liked that. You know? and, and didn't intend on being a commercial photographer for as long as I did. I mean, for example, um, when I was nearly graduating with my undergraduate degree, I was corresponding with uh, Beaumont Newhall. So I still have his two letters from him. And I really treasure them, but they're just form letters. <laughs> but he typed them out and he signed them. <laughs> so I have two really beautiful form letters from Beaumont Newhall. <laughs> and and he, I, was, I was describing my plans to go to graduate school at University of New Mexico. So, so that was my original plan, was that life kind of sidetracked me. And, and, uh, but, but anyway, to answer your question, um, it had to be a very conscious effort on my end. So um, I invested in myself, I saved enough money so I wouldn't have to work for a year, and just worked just on a new portfolio for an entire year. And, um, and that was luck, I think. I think a lot of that was luck, you know, because having the luxury of being able to spend a year just making whatever kind of photography strikes strikes you. And um, 
And the, the good thing with me was that I already had the photographer's discipline, you know, every day make photographs. And not because I had to, but because I loved it. And, and I think that was it, you know, the, the passion and the love for photography is what allowed that to happen, and luck. And then later, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's one corner over there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how you um, started incorporating text and writing into your work, and you know, just being from a photo image base and how that happened? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a writer. And I'd always always had journals. I'd fill up journals really quickly. And I always got easiest grades in all my literature and creative writing classes and so forth. And when I became, after I graduated from high school, I told my mom that I was going to go to a school of photography. And she was totally shocked. She, she said, you're, you're what? <laughs> you know, told her, yeah, I want to be a photographer. And she said, I thought you were going to be a journalist, you know, just because she'd seen my writing. And she was always very supportive of my writing. You know, she'd always give me, she was a good writer herself. She'd give me feedback. And, and when I was younger, she'd fix all the grammatical er errors and so forth. And she was very fastidious about making sure that my writing was at least grammatically correct. <laughs> so, so anyway, the writing was there first, actually. You know, so, so that's why the journals play such an uh, important role in all of my work, you know, because, you know, the, the ideas originate with the journals. And even to this day, I, I find that the ideas, creative ideas, flow more easily when I'm writing, you know, just because I, I think part of it is I, I don't feel like it's forced because it just kind of flows. And, and I know a lot of photographers have different tactics with their own creative process. And I know mine's a little different, but you know, I, I think we all find our own pathways you know, with the creativity and figuring things out. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for coming here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Larry.